star figura is the Phyllis Allen and Walter Borton Associate Curator of Prints and Illustrated Books at the Museum of Modern Art New York. In 2007, she organized the exhibition Lucian Freud, The Painter's Etchings, and it's gorgeous, by the way, and wrote the accompanying catalog. She is currently working on a major exhibition entitled German Expressionism, The Graphic Impulse, which will open at MoMA in March 2011. Welcome, Star. Thank you very much, Gillian. Uh, and um, it's wonderful to be here in Toronto. And I also want to congratulate Brenda Ricks and the staff here for the beautiful Rembrandt uh, Freud show, which is um, just so inspiring and inspired. Um, so tonight I'm going to talk about uh, Lucian Freud a bit, um, who he is as an artist, and um, the, his involvement with the medium of etching and the relationship between his paintings and his etchings. Um, I'm going to say a few things by way of introduction. Um, so while I'm saying that, so you have something to look at, um, these are two self-portraits of uh, Freud. On the left is a self-portrait etching from 1996, and on the right is a self-portrait painting from uh, 2002. And I'm not going to say anything more about them now, although we will revisit them later in the talk. So Lucian Freud is uh, a grandson of Sigmund Freud. His father was um, one of Sigmund Freud's sons. Um, and Lucian was born in Berlin in 1922. Uh, his family was Jewish, and so uh, when the Nazis came to power in 1933, they emigrated to London. And um, then Lucian Freud became a British citizen in 1939. And he always knew that he wanted to uh, spend his life as an artist. Um, he is uh, a portrait uh, artist, and he's a painter, uh, first and foremost a painter, but um, etching has been an integral part of his work since 1982. Um, I would say, in terms of portraiture, that he has very much re-energized portraiture in the 20th century and into the 21st century through his very frank, um, dispass dispassionate scrutiny of the human body. And um, if you look at Freud's work, most people, the first thing they think is how, how strange it is. It's a little bit weird. It's a little bit disturbing. It sort of makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And um, that's all true. Freud um, says he has an absolute horror of the idyllic. And so his, uh, his portraits and his nudes are never idealized. Um, and they're not commissions. He doesn't take commissions. Um, so he feels no compulsion to uh, sort of flatter anybody in his portraits. Um, rather, he thinks, he thinks art should be based on reality. And to him, reality is 
uh, often kind of strange and often kind of disturbing. Um, he also says his work is autobiographical. He says that all the time. He says it's like a diary. Um, and that's because um, his life revolves completely around his work in the studio. Um, seven days a week, every morning and every evening, um, that's what he's doing. He's working with somebody, take, making a portrait of somebody in his studio. And so the people in his pictures are all friends and uh, family members. And perhaps one of the main ways that he spends time with them is uh, making portraits. Um, and um, Freud's etchings are closely related to his paintings. It's often the same people who appear in the etchings as in the, as in the paintings. But sometimes he does the etchings first, the etching of a particular person first. Sometimes he does the etching after a painting. Um, so it's not like uh, he's sort of revisiting the painting necessarily through the etching. They're two separate but related things. So it, it's, etching has sort of replaced drawing in his work. He, almost, he does almost no drawings anymore. Um, but it's not a preparatory process and it's not a sort of um, redo of a painting. It's, it's in, rather, it's another way of sort of acquainting himself with a particular person. So whereas uh, the painting will be gestural and colorful way of approaching a sitter, the etching will be uh, a linear and stark way of uh, getting to know uh, that sitter. Um, so, to go to the beginning, um, Freud made his first few etchings actually in the 40s when he was, in the, he was a young artist um, in his 20s. He made about six etchings between the years of 1946 and 1948. And um, what you see here are um, a, uh, an etching on the left called Girl with Fig Leaf from 1947 and a pastel drawing on the right uh, called Girl with Leaves from 1946. Obviously, they're closely related. They're both portraits of uh, Freud's first wife, Kitty Garman, who was the daughter of the uh, British sculptor Jacob Epstein. And um, these works are typical of his style at that time, which was based on this very minute linear precision. It was like examining something almost with a microscope and replicating it um, hair by hair, pore by pore. So it was very much based on a very careful precise style of drawing. Um, uh, off, his work from this time is often um, talked about in relationship to surrealism because of this kind of strangeness about it. But um, in fact, Freud says he never really appreciated surrealism that much. It was too dogmatic for him, and the idea of working from dreams or fantasy was completely anathema to him. For him, it was about looking at what was directly in front of you, um, and that that itself was sort of strange and surreal enough. In fact, he said, uh, he said, what is more surreal than a nose between two eyes? Um, also, in his work at this time, you'll see 
the figures are always staring out in this very kind of anxious way. So they've also been interpreted as a sort of, you know, it's 1946, 47, 48, sort of post-war um, uh, existential anxiety. Um, here's another one from 1948 on the left, an etching called um, Ill in Paris. It's another portrait of uh, Kitty Garman. And on the right, um, from the same time as a self-portrait uh, that Freud did in oil. And again, you see these two plant forms juxtaposed with the figures. And in this case, very prickly, the, I don't know if you can see the thorns very well, but they are quite prominent in the, in the etching. And then um, this other uh, prickly plant in the uh, self-portrait. Um, I think um, there's a kind of incongruity between that sort of the prickliness of the portrait and the kind of um, very beautiful, very accessible and easy to like style of the work. Um, there's something um, almost decorative cloisonné-like of this way of doing a painting where you're just outlining something very carefully and then um, filling it in. So those are the two sort of um, most significant etchings that he, of the six that he made in the 40s. All of the six etchings were made actually in Paris on kind of extended visits that he uh, took to Paris. And um, that's significant because there was a sort of print, a really fabulous printmaking culture in Paris at that time. Um, there were all kinds of print studios, and he, you know, he could just take his, he, he sort of etched his plates in his hotel room and then just took them off to any number of printers where he could have it etched and then printed. And um, that stands in contrast to the situation in London where there really wasn't, um, it was sort of a, a, a down period for printmaking in London at that time. Um, so after 1948, Freud did not make any more etchings for 34 years. Um, and I think that the lack of sort of opportunity or role models in London was one reason. But another uh, more important reason was he was, um, he wanted to change his style. He wanted to work out of this very meticulous, um, carefully circumscribed, carefully outlined um, style that he'd been doing. He said he was irritated by um, paintings in which you were very conscious of drawing. And so he kind of basically gave up drawing in the 1950s. And I think he saw etching as an extension of drawing, and so he, he would also have given up etching for the same uh, reason. So by the time he um, gets back to etching in the 1980s, his style has um, evolved quite dramatically. So this is a self-portrait um, from 1985. And so you can see it's a much more painterly um, kind of image. It's based not on outlines filled in, but on um, patches of paint. Um, it's a little more abstracted as well. Um, so the reason that Freud got back into etching in 19 82 was um, there was a major monograph on his work coming out by a famous uh, British art historian named Luce, um, Lawrence Gowing. 
And this was the first major monograph on Freud's work. It was 1982, and he was already 60 years old. Um, and so to help subsidize the cost of that publication, um, they wanted to include an etching in like a special edition of that monograph. And so in 1982, on that occasion, he actually made 15 etchings. They're all sort of small, maybe like six by four inches. And he chose four of them to be um, included in the book. So each of those four was editioned in um, editions of 25. And um, there were 100 special editions altogether. Anyway, um, these two are two portraits of Lawrence Gowing. They were not chosen for the book, so they're quite rare. They only <laughs> exist in a few copies each. Um, but you can see how he is kind of making some tentative steps to get back into etching. His style with the etching, especially on the left, um, you'll notice it's changed from those early ones, which are almost geometric in their precision in the way the lines kind of go parallel to each other. Here, the lines are much more um, gestural, much looser. The one on the right is a kind of experimental thing where he dropped varnish on the plate and there's all these sort of accidental pits and things and um, it's actually a kind of thing that he never, it was sort of an experiment uh, which he never did again. Um, these are the four that were chosen for the, um, for the special edition of the monograph. And um, let's see, from the left it's, it's a, it's a self-portrait with another woman, um, which is actually based on a, a photo booth snapshot, which is very unusual because Freud never works from photographs. It's always directly from the person. So that's a bit of an anomaly. Um, the next one is a portrait of the artist's mother, Lucy Freud. Um, the third is a portrait of his daughter, Bella. And the fourth is called Head of a Woman, and it's a portrait of a, a good friend named uh, Susie. Boyd. And um, so his mother and the other two women here were, were frequenting his studio quite a lot at this time um, uh, for, for different reasons, which I will get into. Um, uh, so that, that portrait of his mother is one of three etchings of his mother that he did that year. And those etchings relate to a larger body of um, paintings and drawings that he made of his mother in the 70s and 80s. And these are some of the, the, the paintings. Just, there's a painting you see here on the right from, I think, around 1980. Um, they're just some of the most uh, intense and in incredible uh, works that he ever did, I think. And um, what happened was um, he'd always sort of avoided his mother because he said uh, she was, she, she, he was sort of her favorite. And he said she was always very intuitive about him. And so he was he's very private and he likes to sort of keep his business to himself. And she as a mother was sort of always kind of prying and figuring out what he was up to. And so he, he would sort of avoid her. But then in 1970, his father died and um, she went into a deep depression, actually tried to kill herself. And so Freud um, wanted to, to help her. And also he said that she had sort of lost interest in everything, so she was no longer kind of inquiring into his life. So he felt his privacy was no longer so threatened. So he would pick her up uh, you know, almost every morning 
from her house in St. John's Wood. He'd take her for breakfast to a nice patisserie, and then he'd take her um, to his studio in another part of town, and um, he would make paintings and uh, drawings. And then in 1982, these two, and then one more etching. Um, here's that that one etching that was chosen for the monograph again, uh, just comparing it to one of the drawings. Um, it's interesting, I think, to notice uh, the formal differences between the drawing and the etching. The drawing is, I think, charcoal and pastel from, I think, 1983. And uh, it's obviously much softer, and it's a little more naturalistic, where the etching, there's something just very hard and cold and fierce, and I think a little flatter and a little more abstract. And that's what tends to happen in his etchings. They get a little more abstract. Um, oh, and here's, this is a photograph of him and his mother um, in the patisserie where they would go in the mornings. And I, I, I love this photo because of how attentive he is to her and also because um, I think it shows her as still, you know, a very attractive, well-groomed kind of bourgeois matriarch. And then when you look at the paintings and the etchings, you know, you can see how he's just totally penetrated into um, the kind of loneliness and despair that she's feeling at that time. Um, this is a painting of Freud's daughter, Bella Freud, um, who was also the subject of uh, some of the etchings that he did in 1982, and he would continue to make uh, numerous paintings and uh, etchings of her over the years. Um, uh, so here, uh, the one on the left is one that was Edition for the monograph, and the one on the right um, was not chosen to be editioned, so it's, it only exists in a few proofs. But you see how, with the etchings, he crops in closer on her head, and so it almost looks like this head is sort of floating or um, disembodied. And so, again, it becomes much more abstract, and I think, in a way, it almost recalls like um, Brancusi's uh, sleeping muses from earlier in the century. Um, so the etchings, um, as I said, they, they, they tend, to, they, they were, uh, of people who were frequenting his studio at the time anyway for, um, paintings. And one of the most important of the paintings that he was working on at that time was this one, which is called, um, After Wat Watteau. Um, and he worked on it. it, was the largest and sort of most ambitious painting he'd done up to that point. And um, <clears throat> it um, was based on, sort of very loosely based on, a painting by Antoine Watteau called um, Pierrot Canton, which was a sort of allegorical scene of um, people sort of amusing themselves in the clearing of a wood. And he had seen that painting in the collection of Baron um, Thyssen Bornemisa, who he had painted slightly earlier than that. I guess he was captivated by that painting and sort of reimagined it from the point of view of his own life. I mean, the, the, what's going on here, I mean, these figures have really nothing to do with the figures in the Watteau, but there's this... Um, it's this relationship of sort of love and jealousy among the figures that I think is the connection to the 
Watteau for him. They're sitting in his studio. This is what his studio at that time uh, looked at, looked like. And um, the figures from, I'm going to go from right to left. On the right is uh, Susie Boyd, who was one of the people in the etchings that I showed you. She was a good friend of his and also the mother of, I think, four of his children. Then next to her is her son named Kai, who we'll see again later. Um, and then next to him is holding the mandolin is uh, Bella, who we've already seen, his daughter from another relationship, not Susie Boyd. And then um, next to her on the left is a woman named Celia Paul, who was Freud's, who's a, who's a painter herself in London, uh, and she was Freud's girlfriend at that time. So Freud's life um, was not conventional. Um, by this point, he had, uh, he'd been married twice and divorced, and um, he uh, has always, I guess, had a lot of relationships with different women. Um, uh, some people think he has at least 14 children by several different women. And so... Um, his work doesn't come out of a traditional domestic environment. And um, the people in his life sort of understand. I mean, he says art is all about selfishness and sensuality. And he's, he'll be the first to say, he always says, I'm selfish. And that means that he, everything, his, his art is first. Everything is about his art. And so... Um, the people in his life are part of that um, art. And so with Bella, it's very interesting because she didn't, a lot of his children don't really grow up with him. They sort of know him, but they don't grow up with him in the traditional sense. And so Bella was about 19 when this painting was made and the, and the etchings were done. And um, she had sort of lived away from his, him as a child. She lived outside of London. She came to London um, to work and she wanted to get to know her father. So she started. Um, hanging around the studio and became the subject of a lot of uh, different works. And she's now actually quite a uh, well-known uh, fashion designer in London. Um, and here's a picture of the two of them around that time. You can see the painting um, in the background. And then here's two more of the etchings from that year. Um, on the left is Celia Paul and on the right is Susie Boyd. Um, so after 1992, he, did, he, he only made one other etching over the next couple of years, um, and that was this one, which is a portrait of another daughter named Ib, which obviously is closely related to the painting that you see on the right. Um, and then in 1985, he takes a huge leap with his etchings. All the etchings that he made earlier were, were, as I said, quite small, like say six by four. Um, in 1985, he decides he wants to be more ambitious with this etching, so he works on some plates that are quite large. They're about 27 by 21, like this one. Um, and some of the etchings that he makes are what he calls naked portraits. Um, and so you can see how the etching here is um, very much related to the painting. But they were not, the, the etching was done after the painting. They weren't done at the same time. The etching was not done 
based on the painting, the girl came back again to sit um, for the etching. But what's interesting is the difference, which is primarily that he's dropped out the, the couch and any of the kind of narrative supporting details. And so what's already sort of uncomfortable looking pose becomes that much more awkward and uncomfortable looking. And um, uh, the whole thing just becomes a little more, uh, uh, I would say again, abstract. Um, here's another one, a similar kind of thing going on. For also from 1985, also much larger. Um, this one's from 1987, and um, again, that large format. And actually, you notice the top of the etching cuts through her head, and he did that deliberately. He actually, the plate was actually larger, and then he, um, he didn't like it, thought it wasn't right, and so he actually had it cut down to slice through the top of her head, and it, it, you know, it adds another little note of disequilibrium because there's also so much extra space at the bottom of the image. Um, and here's just a more recent uh, photograph of Freud um, painting from a figure in his um, studio, which now is a sort of townhouse in London. Um, he also did uh, naked portraits of men, although not as many as women. <laughs> so in that sense, he was not quite as unconventional as, as you might think. Um, this was also in 1985. And so you see, in contrast to the ones we just saw, he, here he has filled in some of the background details. And I think um, he was really trying to experiment with all the different types of lines and textures that he could get with etchings. You see him really pushing himself um, with the etching technique, sort of trying to learn all the different things that can be done with it, from you know the wooden floorboards to the tufted couch and the foam spewing out at the bottom and the kind of muslin walls and then you know the figure's body and hair and everything else. Um, uh, so that painting was done in 1985 and then the following year is an example of a painting that comes after the etching um, was uh, this, this painting, I forget what it's called, I think painter in the studio or something like that and that's Celia Paul, his, his girlfriend who was also a a painter, and I think he's kind of, with this painting, taking on the subject of the male, you know, sort of the opposite of the male gaze on the female nude. Um, and then here's um, some other uh, naked portraits of men from a couple years later. It's the same, um, it's the same model, and all of his um, naked portraits of men are the same man. They were all done in sort of from 1985 to 1988. He did other paintings of men, naked men, but in terms of etchings, they were all done in this period from 1985 to 1988. And they were all a man named Angus Cook, who was um, a young filmmaker at that time. Um, and um, one of the things Freud says he likes to, to paint people naked or make etchings of people naked is he thinks of people as animals. He likes to see them as animals, and he says he can get that more um, when they are naked and when they are um, sort of have let their guard down and they're no longer a sort of self-conscious in any way. They're just sort of being them, their natural selves. Um, 
And so often that people just fall asleep because the process takes so long. I mean, they're there for several hours and they have to get sort of natural and comfortable. Um, again, you see how he's dropped out the background details in this um, etching. And um, this etching was that he made an addition of 10 and then he went back to the plate. You see the same etching on the left and then the second state of it on the right. He went back to the plate and added in all the background details. He actually didn't like that plate at all. He didn't really addition, he didn't addition it. Uh, he kind of rejected it. I uh, thought it didn't work anywhere near as well um, with all those other details in the background. And I think he's right. And then here's, um, again, just revisiting the subject in a different way, getting to know it better by coming back to it for a new work. Um, it's the same sitter in the same pose, but he's zeroing in, uh, obviously, on his head and shoulders. Um, and when you see it in person, it's just amazing the way the features of his face are sort of mashed up upon themselves. And um, there's this kind of, on the one hand, very tender, almost infantile look to the way he's sleeping, and then this very brutal kind of representation of what's happening um, to his uh, flesh. And here he, this is a portrait of that same man, Angus Cook. On the left is a drawing, um, and on the right is an etching from 1986. And again, you can just see the how the etching um, makes it turns something that's sort of soft and representational into something that's hard and almost raw. I mean, it almost looks like some kind of grater has been uh, applied to his skin. Okay, so um, from here, uh, in, in the late 80s, Freud's etchings just get increasingly ambitious. They get better and better. And there's a couple of reasons why this happens. Um, one is he's, I think, uh, um, well, there's, there's some, there's, he's getting a lot more attention. There was a major exhibition of his work done in 1987 that traveled internationally, including to the United States. And there was another one in 1992 that also came to the United States. So his profile became um, much higher in the international art world. Um, and I think that... Um, made him feel more ambitious for his work. The other reason is he started working with a new printer, and that's the man that you see here, whose name is Mark Balakshian. And this is his print shop, Studio Prints, which is just a little storefront um, in a neighborhood in Northeast London. And um, here's the inside of the studio. You can see it's very old school, um, you know, most contemporary print workshops that I know of in the United States are much more elaborate, um, but this is just a little etching studio where a lot of uh, London-based artists would take their plates to be printed. And so Freud got into a really great um, rhythm of working with, with Mark Balakshian, the printer. Um, he always had plates delivered to his studio, already prepared with the ground, and um, he would etch them in the studio, just like he would work on a painting. Then when they were done, he would um, send it over to, to Mark and um, have, it have it etched and um, proofed. And so Balakshian would make different kinds of proofs. Some, he would ink some of them darker, some of them lighter, some would have more plate tone, some would be more crisp. So he'd have all these different 
uh, versions of the print, and Freud would come to the studio and they'd look at them together and they'd uh, you know, decide which one they liked the best, if there was one that was ready to be editioned in that particular style of inking, or if he wanted the printer to carry on and try other um, subtle differences in tone. Um, also at this time, Freud, had, Freud started to stand his etching plates up on an easel like a painting. Um, and this, um, I think this had a dramatic effect for his etching. It gave his lines much more vigor and breadth. Um, and um, so, uh, uh, well, anyway, if in this work you can see how he did that. Also, the way that he works now is he basically outlines his subject in white chalk. The ground is, is black. And then he'll start working on his, with his etching needle, looking at the subject and filling in with the etching lines. We'll see this print later in the presentation. Um, one of the things he said about etching, the, the reasons he likes etching, is he said, it's like drawing, but with an element of danger and mystery. And that's, I think, because you're working from this black thing and you're incising tiny little lines through the black ground. And you can't quite see how it's going to come out. It doesn't look like the finished product. And the finished product is also, when it gets printed, it comes out in reverse. And so he says, you know, what's black becomes white and what's left becomes right. And so there's this um, kind of mystery to the process. You're not sure how it's going to turn out. And so he always says this element of surprise when it gets printed um, really excites him and makes him want to continue with the etching. The other thing about that danger and mystery um, Freud was, until recently, a very serious gambler. He loved to gamble and sometimes would go out and just lose all his money in one night. And um, so I think there's that element of kind of uh, uh, the danger of something not coming out, spending months and months working on something and having it not come out the way you think it's going to, or even be completely ruined and just uh, having to scrap it all together because it doesn't etch properly or uh, something about the lines doesn't work the way you think it's going to work. So 1987 is just an amazing year for Freud's uh, etchings. Um, this is an etching from 1987 called um, Lord Goodman. And Lord Goodman was a British barrister. I think he was you know, one of the Queen's lawyers and he knew sort of anybody who was, everybody who was anybody. And he was also Freud's lawyer, but he was too busy to come and sit in Freud's studio, um, but he had this amazing physique and these, you know, huge jowls and everything. He was just incredible looking, and so Freud really wanted to do some works from him, and so he actually went to his, to Lord Goodman's home in the morning and made a couple of drawings and this etching uh, while he was still in bed, and he took a position sort of at the end of the bed, a little bit lower, so he was kind of looking up at Lord Goodman, so you get that, uh, that um, angle, not very flattering, uh, looking up, sort of looking up his nose and at his um, great big jowls. Um, and just the, the, the lines of the face and the hair are just incredible. I, I tried to get a detail. It's, it's hard with the slides. They just don't do justice to the real uh, work. But you can see um, how he is trying to vary his lines as much as possible in his etchings now. 
here's another one from 1987. It's a portrait of Bella. And if you think back to the ones he did just five years earlier in 1982, what a huge leap he's made in terms of the complexity of the image. It's also quite a bit bigger. It's about four times the size of those earlier etchings. Um, this is another one. This, this is from 1992. This is a portrait of Kai, who was the boy that we saw in that painting after Watteau. Uh, kind of, Freud thinks of him as kind of a stepson. Um, this is, I think, one of Freud's most, most beautiful uh, etchings. It's very large. Um, uh, there's something sort of melancholy about his expression, and I think the kind of symmetry of the lines um, in this work uh, sort of enhance that effect. And um, I tried to show a detail, but unfortunately it got a little blurry. But um, I think one of the things about, about Freud's art is there's a duality going on um, all the time on several different levels. One is the duality of sort of realism or reality versus abstraction. So what he's, what he's always dealing with is something real that's in front of him, but the means by which he um, creates it, if you look with the sort of the, um, one of the most compelling things about looking at a Freud is just looking at the brush strokes or the etching lines as sort of abstract details and how beautiful they are. So there's this duality or this contradiction between reality and abstraction, a sort of um, almost ugliness and beauty. There's also a duality between the way he looks at things, which is very almost detached and clinical, but at the same time, it's incredibly intimate. He's very close to these people, both physical presence and in terms of their uh, relationship to him and his life. Um, and then the other thing is just, um, sort of the duality between the ordinary, everyday, quotidian, and the strangeness that comes through in the work. So all those sort of paradoxes and um, contradictions, I think, are, um, are at the heart of Freud's work and what makes them so strange and what gives them um, so much mystery and so much power. Uh, so in the 90s, and um, Freud's work got even more ambitious. Um, as I said, he had a major show that traveled to the Metropolitan Museum in New York and to Berlin and Paris, as well as London. And um, he also got involved with a new model who inspired him to work on a much more monumental scale. And that was the person you see here named Lee Bowery. And Lee Bowery was an Australian um, sort of fashion designer, performance artist, just incredible character on the London scene in the 19, um, late 1980s and 1990s. And um, he was on the club scene in London. These are some of the sort of costumes, the, the clothing um, and makeup that he would um, appear in when he'd go out to the clubs or he'd do a performance in London. He was just incredibly um, creative and outrageous personality. Um, and he was also very, had a very large physique. And so Freud met him uh, after he did a performance in 1989 and asked him to come to his studio and sit. And he was very happy to do that. And the two of them got along really 
well. I think they both had a very kind of anti-establishment attitude and sense of humor. They were both very smart and subversive in the way that they looked at things. Um, so Freud was sort of old school, um, and um, Lee Bauer was sort of new wave, but they really had a meeting of the minds, and I think they really uh, liked and appreciated each other. So Freud did a bunch of huge, monumental, larger-than-life-size paintings of Lee Bowery um, naked, um, sort of very confrontational and um, capitalizing on his sort of outsized personality. But he also did some that were quieter, more intimate, and sensitive, um, including paintings, and then the etchings that he did of Lee Bowery fit into this category. So here are two uh, painting from 1991 and a very large etching, larger than the painting from 1993. And uh, you can see in the etching that sort of somehow his, his, he has this almost sort of rubbery kind of texture to his uh, skin. Um, and then here's a couple more. Um, a typical thing for Freud is to kind of do a slightly odd angle, um, to look at somebody from an odd angle. And again, that sort of creates a sort of abstraction to the work. Um, and one of um, Lee Bowery's good friends was a woman named Sue Tilly. And so Freud started working from her in, I think, about 1993. And he made about four also very monumentally sized paintings of her and two um, etchings. So this is one of the paintings. Uh, here's another painting and the etching. And so again, you see with the etching, he's dropped out the background. And so you have this amazing thing of this very, um, obviously very heavy weighty form just sort of floating um, weightlessly on the blank sheet of uh, paper. And um, Freud has said, you know, he has a predilection for people with sort of unusual forms and physiques. And he tries not to overindulge it, but he was um, totally um, fascinated and amazed by her body. Um, and then this is another one, which I think is one of his absolutely most amazing etchings. I think it's his largest etching overall. It's like 36 inches wide. Um, and again, you see her face mashed up against her hand. It's this kind of brutal portrait, but at the same time, it's hard to see in this, but when you see the real thing, if you just look at some of the patches of etching, there's just this incredibly lyrical beauty to the way he's um, done the lines. And there's a picture of her. Um, and then sort of in the mid-late 90s, continuing to now. He didn't do so many naked portraits in uh, etching anymore. Most of his etchings are portraits, although he did naked people in, in paintings. Um, so here is one of a woman named Susanna, who was a very close friend and companion with, of Freud's for about 20 years. And he made, um, I think, dozens of paintings that feature her. Only one etching, though. Um, but you can see how he keeps uh, revisiting her in different ways and that um, you can just tell the sort of intimate relationship that they have and um, the way that, you know, she, she looks like somebody that he likes to talk to. Uh, here are another couple of etchings. On the left is um, David Dawson, who's Freud's uh, studio assistant, just a super nice guy. And on the right is... Um, Ali, 
Allie, who is one of Freud's uh, sons. And then here's Bella again in another really ambitious etching where now he's actually, it's from 1995. Uh, it's called Bella in her Pluto t-shirt. Um, that's the dog on her t-shirt is called Pluto and that's Freud's Whippet. And uh, she appropriated that drawing by Freud as her logo for her fashion line. Um, and you can see here he has actually filled in a lot of the background details. Um, which he hadn't done so much previously in his etchings. And I especially like the background um, um, sort of staccato lines, all over lines that create this kind of moiré effect behind her. It's almost like this flickering light. And um, Freud sometimes says that he's very much aware of the air that goes around people and that the air that, that's around them um, has to do with the particular vitality that they have as a person. And so I think with, this, with that background effect here, you can sort of see what he's talking about. Um, there's another one on the right with that sort of flickering background effect. Um, this is a, a portrait of an Irishman from on, the, le on the, the right. The etching is 1999. The painting is a few years earlier. Uh, this is a man named Paul McLean, who has an interesting relationship to Freud. Um, <clears throat> his father was named Alfie McLean, and Alfie McLean was a pretty famous, um, I guess, bookmaker in Ireland, a bookie. And as I said, Freud was uh, a serious gambler for a long time. He loved to bet on the greyhounds and the horses and all these kinds of things. And so he got to know Alfie McLean, I guess, in that way, he knew him for a long, long time. And in fact, um, the McLeans have, I think, probably the largest and best private collection of Freud's work um, anywhere. So you can figure out that connection. <laughs> um, but they're very good friends. Um, and they've, uh, the Alfie and his son have sat for Freud many times, and they're huge fans of his work. Um, this is a etching and painting of a man named Martin Gayford, who is a London uh, art critic. These were done in 2005, and uh, he wrote about his experience sitting for Freud, and he said that Freud wanted the two images to be different, and he fe this man feels that they are. He says the painting was done uh, in the nighttime, and that as a result, it seems more relaxed and more open, the nighttime was a time of sort of relaxation. He'd have a glass of wine. The cares of the day were sort of behind them. It was just a really nice time to spend time together and with artificial light. Where the etching on the right was done during the daytime with um, daylight coming in through the windows and um, in the afternoon, and he was working on a project uh, that was sort of vexing him. And you know, it was the daytime. He was very conscious of not being at work and being in Freud's studio. And so he he feels that the the cares um, and the worries of all that are registered on his face, in the kind of furrow in his brow and the the lines around his eyes, um, and in the kind of woozy um, background. And here's a picture of uh, Martin Gayford sitting in Freud's studio for that painting. And here's a, uh, a picture of the etching as it was being worked on in the studio. So you see how it's sort of like the, the, the copper etching plate is emerging out of the, 
the darkness of the ground. And then the final one, as, as, as I said, the, the light areas will be the black ink and the black areas will be white paper. Um, this is a painting and a etching of um, William Aquavella, who is Freud's dealer in New York. So the left is called New York in a blue shirt and the right is called New Yorker. And he's a, he's a quite formidable uh, man, so I think these are pretty good portraits. And there he is sitting in Freud's um, studio with the etching plate on the easel. And then through the window is the Freud's backyard garden, which we'll see in some uh, few slides later. So other than people, Freud does sometimes do a few other subjects, which are still, still be considered portraits. One of them is animals. He has an amazing affinity for animals. Um, and he, he had a whippet for a long time named Pluto, and you see Pluto in the etching at the bottom there. Uh, it's another whippet. Uh, actually, that's Susanna, I think, lying in the painting who we saw earlier with her hand to her face. Um, and she also had a whippet. All these people in Freud's circle have whippets. And um, so she's sleeping with the dog. And you can see what he was talking about when he says he likes people to seem like animals in the way that they're limbs are relaxed and they're just sort of being themselves and lying the way they would um, if they were completely unselfconscious. Um, and then this is Pluto, uh, age 12. It was done in the year 2000 and um, I just love this uh, etching. I don't know if you can see it very well here, but um, Pluto's an old dog at this point and the, and the age is really registered on her face and um, uh, uh, you know, with the with the images of dogs, with with Freud's, with people, sometimes you do feel like you're not really sure how he feels about those people, and there's a little bit of uh, ambiguity and lots of different complexities going on. But with the animals, you just feel that he purely loves them and appreciates them. Um, and then there's that hand coming in very strangely from the right, and I think maybe, he doesn't usually do this, but there may be some kind of symbolic uh, thing going on there with, with her age. She did die uh, soon after this. Um, this is another whippet named Eli, who belongs to uh, Freud's assistant, David Dawson, and you can see Dawson's feet in the painting on the left. And so you can see again, he's revisiting the theme, but changing it a little bit, rotating it to a horizontal position. And um, this is another really very large, incredible uh, etching. Just the, the lines are just really fantastic. And there's Eli in the studio. And you can see the walls that are sort of encrusted with paint. That's what his studio looks like. And um, he also sometimes does plants or uh, landscapes. And he said he does that sometimes when he's feeling um, uh, not so great or a little withdrawn and he doesn't really feel like staring at other people or being with other people. And so um, in the last few years, he's made um, several um, etchings and paintings of his backyard garden. And that's what these are um, from a few years ago. And um, I think, again, you can see with the etching 
um, this, there's this incredible abstract uh, patterning going on with the black and the white. Um, they show this kind of effect of light through leaves, but it's also just an absolutely gorgeous um, abstract pattern. And there's a photo of his the garden in his backyard and um, the little, um, you can see right there is actually Pluto's uh, grave. Um, and so sometimes Freud is an avid student of old master paintings. Um, there's certain artists that he uh, really admires. One of them is Rembrandt. Another one is um, Chardin. And this is a painting in the National Gallery in London called The Young Schoolmistress. It's from about 1735. And in the year 2000, Freud was asked by the National Gallery to come in and um, do, do something based on work in their collection as part of their celebration of the millennium. And so he chose this painting. And um, apparently senior artists in uh, London have the right to go into the National Gallery like whenever they want for free, and so he would go in the middle of the night and work in the galleries from the Chardin painting. And so he did a, a version of the painting on the left. It's, it's sort of a faithful reproduction, although it's cropped in a little bit tighter, and the, the painting style is, is more Freud's, more gestural style as opposed to Chardin's. But Freud says he didn't want to copy the painting. It was more just that he wanted to get nearer to it. He wanted to get close to it. He called it a labor of love. So I really think it's like a, he's making a portrait of this other person's painting that he loves so much. Um, after he did that painting, he did an etching version, which is even slightly larger than the painting, in which you see him cropping in even a little bit closer. So again, he's cropping tighter with the etching. He's translating um, paint daubs into uh, black and white lines, and that's making the whole thing sort of conceptually and perceptually different and more abstract. Then he, Freud did another very, these are two very small, tiny works. Um, a painting where he crops in much more closely, and I think he's trying to look carefully at the relationship between these two figures. I think a young boy and the teacher who's teaching him, and he's, he's, he's talked about um, how he loves the expression on the woman's face um, and how sort of generous and giving she is towards this other person. Um, and then on the right is an etching where he crops in even more. And um, with this etching, it's, it's, if you didn't know what this was coming from, if you just saw it by itself, I think it would be uh, almost indecipherable. You couldn't really tell what was going on there. As it is, it's, um, it's in reverse because it's an etching. Um, and it's the, her ear. Uh, her ear and the bonnet and her cheek and nose. Um, so again, with the etching, he's cropping in, he's getting more abstract. And so I think with this back and forth between painting and etching, um, it's just a way for him to see his subject in a new way and to continually sort of recharge and refresh and sharpen his vision. And that's where I'm going to stop. Um, I'd be happy to take any questions, if anybody has any.
We have microphones here, so. How big were the additions that he was doing? Oh, gosh. Um, I used to know off the top of my head. I Thank you, Brenda. <laughs> yeah, 46. When he started in, in the 80s, they were a little smaller, but now, yeah, they're about 46. Another question? Can you talk a little bit about the portrait that he did of Queen Elizabeth and oh. whether there was an etching of that as well? He didn't do an etching of that, um, so I haven't studied it that much, but um, I know that he was, that was one of the few occasions where he, he actually accepted a commission. I think he felt he couldn't refuse. And it was also one of the only occasions where um, she didn't come to his studio, he went to her. <laughs> uh, and also it was very small, um, which I think was due to the fact that um, he's such a slow worker and so um, I think he kept it small in order to try to get through it in a reasonable amount of time and in respect of um, the Queen's time. And I know there was a controversy about it. Um, I don't really relate to that because I don't see Freud's work as, um, uh, you know, I, I think Freud's work is great and it doesn't bother me, the, the disturbing and strangeness of it. I think that's what makes it so great. But I know that some people felt that wasn't appropriate for a portrait of the queen, but, you know, they should have known what they were dealing with. <laughs> what was his relationship to his grandfather? Uh, he, he must have been relatively young when Sigmund Freud died. Yeah, I think Sigmund Freud died, I think, in 1939. So Freud would have been about 17. And I think um, Sigmund Freud emigrated to London a little bit later than um, Lucien and his family. But he, um, Lucien hates to be sort of interpreted in light of his grandfather. He doesn't really like to talk about his grandfather, but I have uh, read um, him talk about how he really loved his grandfather, and his grandfather would you know, tell him little jokes or take his false, false teeth out and do funny things with that. And so you know, I think he, um, he loved him like a grandfather, but I think the whole thing of you know, the hugeness of Sigmund Freud is not something he wants to get into, and, and a sort of Freudian interpretation of his work is, is not the place that he wants to go to. So um, does that answer the question? Is, I just wanted to ask you if you knew anything about um, all those years that he was producing all those children. Did he support them all? Did he have a, did he have money, or did somebody else support him? Um, I mean, he didn't have that. Um, I got the sense that he wasn't all that successful until a little later on. Yeah, I think I think. I think he did support them. I think he had enough money to support them. Um, 
I think, you know, uh, another one of his daughters um, is Esther Freud, who's, who's she's a sister of Bella Freud, and um, she's a novelist. Uh, I think her most famous book is, is Hideous Kinky, which was also made into a movie. And it's a very autobiographical book about her childhood in a, in a few years when she was sort of, I don't know, maybe six or so years old. And um, her her mother is like a single mother with these two daughters. And it's a kind of a very bohemian lifestyle in the probably late 60s, early 70s. They have like no money. Um, and as I said, it's very bohemian. In the in Hideous Kinky, they go to... Um, Morocco and sort of try to eke out an existence for a while and she's the mother is trying to um, attain a kind of spirituality there but one of the things in the book is um, they're constantly waiting for money to come from their father it does eventually come but um, you know I think he was not as uh, on top of that as um, you know he could have been do you know whereabouts in London his studio is? Um, now it's sort of, I don't know London that well, so it's, I mean, I was there, but I, <laughs> I was sort of vaguely aware of where I was. It's sort of near Notting Hill on the west, um, the west end. But he's kept, he's had different studios, always in these kind of uh, row houses or townhouses. And I think sometimes he keeps more than one, and um, it's this thing of his privacy. He doesn't really want, sometimes he wants to disappear to somewhere where nobody knows where he is. So, and he's had studios in different parts of town, sometimes more sort of down and out kind of areas. And now it's in a sort of a nice um, upscale area. Um, you, you speak about his affinity for animals. Mm -hmm. And it is true that, that, that there's, there's a look um, his look towards them seems to be very much more an aesthetic look, and uh, you can tell the love that he has. With but did he do many of them, or were they only these whippets? Uh, he's also, in, in, in etching, it's only those whippets. Uh, in painting, he's done a number of paintings of horses. He loves horses. When he was younger, he, he loved to ride. Um, I loved to bet. <laughs> I loved to bet on the horses. Um, so he's done a number of paintings of horses. Uh, I think that's it, dogs and horses. Yeah? Can you tell us a little bit about his education? Oh, boy. Um, after he got to England, I think he went to a succession of boarding schools, which I'm, I think if you're English, they probably mean something to you, but since uh, they, they didn't mean that much to me, except I think they were probably very well-respected uh, boarding schools. Um, I think he got kicked out of one for something. He was kind of a bad boy type and um, not so interested in studying, more interested in horseback riding or um, you know, going off to draw or something like that. So, um, and I think he studied, uh, yeah, he studied art somewhere briefly, but he, I don't, he didn't have a huge amount of um, academic training. He's more of self-taught, and I think in that early work, you can see there's a, they're a little bit naive, and you can see that it's um, a little bit self-taught in that way. Hi. Hi. Did he have anything against uh, dry point or uh, 
correcting his images or burnishing any of those things, or was that a bit of a like a faux pas for him? Oh, thank you for asking that. Um, yeah, because he really pretty much restricted it to etching. Uh, I don't think he has anything against dry point. He may have used dry point on one or two things, although I'm not even sure about that. I think it's more, um, yeah, but he never tried any other printmaking techniques. Um, he never tried, he never added aquatint to plates or anything like that. Um, I think it was just about sort of being in his studio, doing the etching, doesn't really want to get very involved in the technical side, um, and so never really explored any other techniques. I don't think he'd be against dry point, maybe to sort of reinforce lines. I don't think he'd ever want to do that um, only dry point, because that's, he just never has. I don't, I actually can't say why, but um, I think some etchings, they have kind of stopped things out and corrected them, not too many. Um, but basically, he's not interested in experimenting with techniques, getting technical. Um, it's really just about using etching as a form of drawing. Any further questions? About um, when he was painting his whippets, did you think they just lay down and it was like a one <laughs> sitting job? Because most of those portraits of people went on and on for months. So do you know anything about that? Or even the etching? Yeah, no, actually, that's a good question. I, I think he did. I think, he, well, I think, I think he was able to uh, work from them at a time when they were sleeping. And so, he, I mean, he definitely didn't do it all at once. He definitely did it the same way. He did it with people over many months, so maybe he had to be a little more accommodating to their schedules <laughs> than he was with people. But um, yeah, he definitely did it in the same way. So, but dogs do sleep, so he must have just found that found those moments. Hi, I was just wondering about your your visit to his studio because I know that you were able to go to London, and I know that's not it's not easy to get to see him, and I was wondering if you had a, a difficult time making that appointment and <laughs> what it was like when you were actually there, or how you found him. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, I did get to go and uh, see him in the course of uh, organizing the show for MoMA, and, um, you know, I was quite anxious that he wouldn't see me because he doesn't really see people, but uh, I guess it helped to have to... to I had to write a letter to his lawyer. Everything goes through his lawyer, and then the lawyer feeds it to him, and then he responds to you via the lawyer. <laughs> Once you get to know him better, then you can do it through his assistant. But um, he never, I mean, I never got to that level. Very few people do. I mean, he doesn't even, um, I think there's like two people in the world who have his phone number. You know, he doesn't even give that out to family members. So he, he guards his privacy and he guards his time. He, he doesn't want anything to distract him from his art. So um, he doesn't see that many people and he doesn't um, feel compelled to follow. He's very, he's very polite. He's very obviously very well brought up and gracious, but he doesn't feel the need to follow normal social conventions. Um, so... Um, 
you know, he'll just say, I don't, he just won't respond or he won't see people. But he did see me, he did let me come, um, I guess, because he was happy that MoMA wanted to do a show. And um, so I just went to his house and he opened the door and he, uh, he's, he's very, um, he's a very charismatic kind of magnetic presence. Uh, that probably sounds very hokey, but he's one of those people that once you're in that, when his presence, you just want to stay there. Um, and when he opened the door, he has, his eyes were just, they look like an owl. His eyes were just huge. And some artists have that where you, they're just staring at things for so long that their eyes get really big and kind of saucy. And that's what his eyes were like. <laughs> that was the first impression that I had of him. And then we went for lunch and then we went back to the studio and he showed me what he was working on. And he was very nice, but he doesn't, um, he just doesn't give much out. And people had warned me, oh, I was, you know, don't even ask to, to record anything. He doesn't want to ever be recorded. I asked to do, I wanted to do an interview with him for the catalog, and um, we'd had this nice lunch and had this nice time in his um, house, and then I, then I, you know, got my courage to ask him for that, and that changed the whole mood. And he got very stern and said, well, you know, why would you want to do that? Or why would that be? Why would you want to do that? And anyway, he didn't go for that at all. Um, so I think only, only a few people that he really knows and trusts will he allow to, um, to interview him. And um, he doesn't really like questions about his work so much. So you have to be a little bit careful. You don't want to probe too much or he'll just sort of um, retreat. And he doesn't give that much away anyway. I mean, the first time I had lunch with him, I was very... Um, it, he doesn't, you know, as I said, he doesn't observe a lot of the social convention, so there's no small talk. So it's kind of like, uh, <laughs> you know, there were some a lot of long pauses. <laughs> but he's he's very 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 charming though in his way. I just wanted to add something about the question concerning the whippets. I read, and I, I truly don't remember the source, and perhaps it will uh, be familiar to you, uh, that uh, it was either his whippet or his uh, associate's whippet. What they would do was take the dog out to the park and let it run until it was so, so tired, then bring it home, feed it. And at that point, that dog was really exhausted and willing to sleep for a very, very long period of time. Does that make sense to you? It makes sense. I've never heard that or read that. But it must have come from a credible source. I try only, you know, to focus on credible sources. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it seems perfectly um, logical. You know, why not? So. This, this person would like to know if he ever came to New York. Um, he did. He came uh, for the opening of the show that I did, which was... Um, we weren't expecting that at all, so it was just fantastic. And um, other than that, I think he'd been to New York in the 40s. And so he, um, uh, he, uh, he was kept remembering what it was like in the 40s. Um, he may have come another time, because his dealer is in New York. Um, but I don't think he doesn't, I mean, not more than a couple of times has he come to New York. 
he doesn't really like to leave his studio, um, so he doesn't travel that much. Um, just a quick question about how he paints his portraits, how long he takes to do it, and how he kind of how that whole process. Oh yeah, thanks for asking that. I meant to I meant to talk about that. Um, well, he basically, I think, well, he's slow. He's now 87, so he's slowed down quite a bit. But um, I think when he was sort of in his prime in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, he sort of established a rhythm. It was like seven days a week. He'd have a morning session from like 7 a.m. to 1, and then he'd have lunch and kind of a rest. And then um, he'd have an evening session from like 7 at night until 1 in the morning or sometimes later, and that's seven days a week. So, you know, it was really, that's, that was his life. And um, there's a great film that um, Jake Auerbach, who's the son of Frank Auerbach, who's a London painter who's Freud's best friend. And um, so he did a sort of film about where he, inter Freud would not be interviewed on film, but uh, he interviewed some of, a lot of the sitters and uh, it's really great because they, they all say, say sort of, you know, how wonderful it is, to, how grueling it is to sit there, but also um, how they kept doing it because they just enjoyed spending that time with him and that he was very considerate and he would, you know, if you went there in the evening, he'd make dinner, there'd be like a roast in the oven and, or, you know, some like fowl, you know, I don't know what he would cook, but like whatever, um, some kind of roast game or something like that. And, you know, he'd have champagne or wine for you while you, while you sat. And, and um, so that it was just like this, this sort of wonderful experience for most of them, despite also being very grueling and exhausting and boring at times, too. Um, the other thing I wanted to say, mentioning Frank Auerbach, I forgot to mention, was he was also very good friends with uh, Francis Bacon early on. They had a falling out in later years, but for many decades they were the closest of friends. Um, and it was really Francis Bacon who helped him a lot when he was trying to um, move his style away from that early sort of naive delineated style and become more painterly. And uh, Francis Bacon told him to... Um, stop using sable hair brushes and start using hog's hair brushes. And sable is like really, really fine and hog's hair is much thicker and coarser. And so that's when he was able to start kind of really moving the paint around and mashing it up. And um, so when you look at, I mean, you can't see it in the slides, but when you see them in person, they're just so thickly, in, in such thick impasto and um, just the, the, the visible paint brushes are really amazing. He also, Francis Bacon also told Freud to stand up when he worked, and that also gave his work um, a lot more vigor um, and um, gestural style. If one wanted to see um, a large collection of Freud, who has the, the best or the most paintings? Well, that's a good question. Um, most of Freud's paintings are in private collections, so they're hard to see. Uh, probably the best place to go is the Tate Britain. They, it's probably the museum with the most. I mean, they have, I don't know, maybe seven or eight paintings, and they're usually, you know, a good number of them are on view. So, but it's hard, it's basically impossible to see a whole lot at once other than the Tate, I think. 
Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, because for for so many years, as I said, he really um, he was he was sort of well known in the art world in London, but um, internationally he wasn't known at all, and it wasn't collected by that many museums. It was mostly collected by just collectors and private people in London. Um, but then, as I said, in the 80s and 90s, it's interesting what happened was um, after decades of sort of minimalism and conceptualism in, the, in pop art in the 60s and 70s, you know, Freud was painting um, portraits all those years. He never, he never stopped. He was just sort of followed his own path regardless of what was kind of the thing in the art world. Um, but then in the 80s, all of a sudden, there was this return to figuration and neo-expressionism. And so then all of a sudden, the art world um, looked at Freud and thought he suddenly seemed relevant. And so that's why he started getting these um, bigger international traveling shows. Where is the picture of the queen? Uh, I, I don't know. I assume the queen has it. <laughs> Did he ever do a portrait of his father? No, no. Uh, his father died in 1970. I don't think he ever did a portrait of his father. What, what was his relationship like with his mother? Well, as I said, um, he was his mother's favorite, and um, I think she sort of adored him, and he was named for her. She was Lucy Freud. He's Lucian Freud, and, um, you know, I think she sort of understood him, and um, he felt she understood him too well, and she was too intuitive, and sort of, and he was always very private, especially as a young, you know, as adolescents and young people are. They don't really want their parents in their business. And so um, I think he avoided her for a long time. I think he always loved her as a mother, but um, he was off doing his own thing. Um, so then it was after, as I said, after his father died in 1970, by which point Freud would have been, what, about um, almost 50 years old. Um, then he, um, um, he wanted to help his mother, and also because she was so withdrawn, she was no longer um, you know, being as inquisitive um, to his life, and so he felt more comfortable uh, spending that much time with her because over those years from, she died in 1989. So in the 70s and early 80s, I think he painted like 10 paintings of her and at least five or six drawings and those three etchings. So she was one of the most, um, you know, the biggest presences in his studio during those years. Any more questions? I'm not seeing any more hands. In which case, at this point, I'd like to thank you so much for a, a wonderful talk. What a fascinating man, what strong art. And it, it's interesting to me that he was so, he's so reticent as a person, but he reveals so much, really, in his art. You know? Yeah, I'm, that's right. I'm also right. fascinated with the fact that he doesn't draw, that he's going directly to the etching plate, which is not necessarily easy, you know. It's very, that's right. Yeah. My daughter yeah. does etching, so I oh. know a little bit about it. But yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I didn't get into the, the technical. I mean, I hope everybody more or less knows how an etching is made, but it gets, it gets very boring to try to explain it. But, um, but anyway, yeah, he, he, he had to give up drawing um, in order to change his painting style. Um, but then once he had achieved that painting style, I think he was okay to, to start working in a more linear way again with etching.
but, but fascinating, and thank you so very much. The <laughs> images were just wonderful, just on their own. Um, if you enjoyed this, in two weeks' time, we have Stephanie Dickey from Queen's University who will be talking about Rembrandt, so the other side of the show, and that will be fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you.